We're still in our John series. We will be for quite some time. And I have the great joy of uh, preaching through John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21 today. So let's read the word of God. This is John 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word, the precious gift of your word to us. Thank you for the goodness of your grace. Thank you for the spiritual provision that comes through your word by the power of your spirit. We thank you that your presence is here with us today. You are here ministering to us. What a gift. Thank you for that. Would you grant us the eyes to see who you are and how you are at work. Grant us the ears to hear your voice today. And may we rejoice that you are truly here with us and your presence is healing and redemptive and restoring. We thank you. We love you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was a dark and stormy night. Like literally and figuratively. It was a dark and stormy night. In today's passage, we go from a mountaintop high, a miraculous feast with rising excitement and hope, and then we go down, we go down, and we go down into a low valley. And we descend not just in altitude, but in attitude, not just in elevation, but in experience, body, soul, visceral experience. We descend into darkness, into confusion, into danger. And to fear. And today, as we look at the fifth sign in the Gospel of John, we see a, a timeless truth that comes as an incredibly timely truth to us today in our world a world of COVID, a world in which there is the war in Ukraine, inflation, toxic polarization on almost any and every issue. A world of us versus them, a world of great violence and pain. And I know we're coming out of the other side of a pandemic, but there is an endemic of fear that has been stirred up by all the blustering cultural winds. There is threatening storms of discord that are on the horizon and um, are here now and within us, within our own hearts. Winds are blowing and boats are being battered for sure. We're in the middle of a mess. And I don't say that um, as a statement of hopelessness. It's an assessment and it's a reality check which should point us towards the goodness of the gospel, that we need the gospel. And I imagine that some of you have felt a little bit seasick over the last couple of, of years, right? 
that there's some nausea, some soul nausea that's gone on, and we need a good dose of, of soul, of head and heart Dramamine. <laughs> and the, the passage today provides us with that. There's something life-changing for us in this short and profound passage in John, and I pray we see it all today. Because here in this dark and short scene on the waters of the sea, there is the cure for fear. And apprentices of Jesus need to see this, need to, to know this. But not just think about it mentally, but to, to have our imaginations so radically altered and changed by the good news that it then shapes our, our habits. That we would see the world differently and therefore live in this world differently. And it would affect our daily interactions. And so um, I pray that that's the case today. So let's, let's go there. Let's go to the sea. Let's go to the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee teemed with fish in Jesus' time. It was rich with life. It was verdant. It was, it was lush. It still is. There was a prosperous commercial fishing industry along the towns on the shore of, of the sea. And this area was the primary area of Jesus' ministry for those three years. His headquarters, his, his home base was in Capernaum, a, a town on the, the northern shore of the sea there. And, and actually it's a little bit of a misnomer, misnomer to call this a sea. It's a lake. It's a large, fresh water lake set in the hills of northern Israel. As you can see there, um, I love this picture because you get a sense for the, for the elevation change, how it's nestled in to um, this higher elevation. Now the sea itself there sits about 700 feet below sea level, and the sea itself has a depth of about 200 feet. And this is all because it sits within what's called the Great Rift Valley that runs right through Israel from, from north to south. It's where the tectonic plates are, and, and they shifted and they moved, and it's created this great deep depression. And so you have the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River that runs down, and then ultimately goes down to the lowest point on earth, which is the Dead Sea. That all happens there in the, in the Great Rift Valley. Can we show that next picture? So there you can see that Great Rift Valley. That dark spot is that, that deep depression. And then you can see the elevation of the hills and the mountains that all, that's all around the Sea of Galilee. Now if you look from east to west in the Sea of Galilee at its widest point, it's about eight miles across from east to west. And then if you look long ways from north to south, it's, it's about uh, 13 miles, I think almost 14 miles there from, from north to south, which will come into play here in just a minute. Um, you, you go from about 700 feet below sea level to about 1,400 feet above sea level in the surrounding hills and mountains. And then if you move further north to the Golan Heights, you get, get up to 2,500 feet. So this is, this is a massive elevation change in this small area. And all these geographic features lead to its great beauty, right? its, its great uh, verdancy, its, its flourishing. But it also leads to its danger because it has a propensity for turbulent weather. So the sea's nestled in location makes it subject to sudden and violent storms. So what happens is a, a wind will come in and bring the, the cold air, and that cold air will swoop down in over the mountains quickly and come over the, the warm air, and then there'll be a turning of the atmosphere with the warm air and the cold air switching places, and as it does, it brews up storms, and the winds kick up and move fast, and then suddenly this, this large lake, this small sea, starts to move. So they've registered waves um, at 10 plus feet on this. Now, now imagine this. Imagine you're in your kitchen, you take a big soup, uh, soup pot, fill it halfway up, and you just give it a good slosh left or right. Because of the size of that thing, what's going to happen? Right? The water is going to be spilling up and splashing out over it. 
So if you take the size of this lake with the, the, the ferocity of the winds and the size of the waves, it's going to be like that soup pot. You know, you're just slapping it back and forth. It's going to be going everywhere. It's enough to turn the stomach of the most seasoned fishermen. Okay? So these are violent, violent storms. Now, here's an image from 1890. You can see here a traditional Galilean fishing boat. Um, this uh, looks something like what the boat the disciples and our passage are in would look like. I love that picture, by the way. Isn't that awesome? You can see, again, the elevation as you look around. But you see the, the, the simplicity um, of that boat, of, of a crew going out there to fish. Now, how in the world do we know that the boat that Jesus and his disciples would have gone back and forth and see on uh, looks something like this? How, how do we know that? Uh, well, because we found a boat in 1986, and when I say we found a boat, I had nothing to do with finding that boat or digging that boat out of the mud during that severe drought. But in 1986, they found the Jesus boat, so we'll show the Jesus boat. Um, it, was, it was brilliantly preserved because it was stuck in the mud. There was a severe drought. They saw some wood sticking up. They, they dug it up. They, they carbon dated it, and it's called the Jesus boat because the dating is between 50 B.C. and 50 A.D. The, the boating technology did not change that much within you know, that 100-year period. So most likely, the boat that Jesus and his crew were in looked very, very similar to this. So it was an efficient fishing vehicle, but imagine something like this in a storm with 10 feet waves, right? It's not going to go all that great. So the scene is set. Let's go back now to the text. Some of these things, these pieces are going to start to fit together in a new way for you. First, when we look at verses 16 through 21 here in John 6, I think we need to notice the gravity and the ominous tone of the text. We really need to keep working on and learning how to read well so we can see the beauty of Christ through the scriptures that he has, has given us. So um, we need to look for patterns. We need to look for how words, words are used. And we see um, something interesting happen here. So note the cumulative effect of these words. When evening came, right? It's getting darker. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. The sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So there's a cumulative effect of these words. Darkness is approaching, and the narrative movement is down. It's, a, it's descending, and it's an ominous descent. There's a storm brewing. Then there's a storm raging. They're alone out there. Their master isn't with them. The one who has been leading them and guiding them and protecting them, they are not with him. There's a great fear. The, the word that, that's used there is, is terrified or, or, or frightened. This is an intense Intense bodily reacting kind of fear. And then Jesus uses the word afraid. Right? And, and then, then we have this, this interesting repetition. The sea, the sea, the sea, the sea. John uses this four times in these few verses. Which is more than, than Matthew or Mark use it in their longer account. What is he doing here? And why is this an ominous thing? It's just the words of the sea. Well to the Jewish people the sea was the place of chaos. It was the place of darkness. It was where the monstrous things 
came from. They, they crept out from the deep. It was the symbolic dwelling place of evil and rebellion. It's where the, the Tamim lived, the, the, the sea monsters, the great sea serpents. If you recall the book of Daniel, when evil crawls out in those dreams, evil's crawling out of where? The sea. In the book of Revelation, when all things are healed and made new, it says there will be no sea. That's not because Jesus hates scuba diving or doesn't like, you know, hanging out on beaches. He's not talking about like a literal physical sea. He's, he's talking about the fact that all the evil and all the chaos that threatened to break upon the shores of life has been wiped out. It's gone. He is healed and redeemed and restored. And there will be a brand new creation without evil threatening. Right? So it's, it's the place of the deep. It's the abyss. It's the dark stuff. It was a dark and stormy night. Verse 16 through 17 when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Right? Moving, going down to the sea. They got into a boat. They started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So remember, we've got to set all of our stories within context. The big macro context, the whole arc of redemption, um, to the, the very small context of this story. But then the, the surrounding stories in the book of John itself. So what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, Remember, last week we talked about the fourth sign. Jesus had fed the 5,000, but he actually fed more than the 5,000. The 5,000 refers just to the men only, so it was more like fifteen to 20,000 when you include the women and children. This is massive, miraculous provision of fish and bread that showed he was Jesus, Moses 2.0, that he was the promised prophet, the one who would come to bring liberation to his people, right? The one who would come to take them out of slavery to provide a new exodus from, from the tyrannical forces of this world. And then to feed them bread like Moses did, like God did through Moses in the wilderness. Jesus is the bread from heaven that nourishes his people. That was, that was last week. Now on the heels of that we have this story. Now Jesus is tired. He's had a long day of ministry. In fact, they had tried to escape and just to get away from the people, but then the people came and Jesus ministered to them and poured himself out. So he's tired. The day's been long. The light has left the sky. So what now? Well, Jesus tells the disciples what the next move is. We can see this here in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 14. Here's what it says in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 23. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he, that's Jesus, while he dismissed the crowds. Remember, what were the crowds wanting to do? They were trying to force him to be king, right? To, to grab him by the shoulders and lift him up and be like, you're our king. You're going to conquer by force. Let's go do this. And he says, no, sends the disciples away. And then he dismisses the crowds, right? And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, right? Unceasing prayer was the way of Jesus, always communing with the Father. When evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus sends them off. The disciples, he sends them off to, to get in a boat to cross the sea back to Capernaum. Remember their home base. They're going to be going from the east to, to the west across the sea. And as they go, the darkening day gets darker, right? It seems that the plan was for them to meet Jesus on the other shore somewhere. That Jesus might stay the night, might take the long walk around the northern shore there, which you can do. It would have taken him some time. Jesus needed some breathing space, so maybe they were going to go meet up over there. Now, 
as they row, the night gets darker and the storm rises, and something not so wonderful this way comes to them. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, help me out here. Before John, the, the guy who wrote this book, um, the Gospel of John, before he was an apprentice of Jesus, what was his day job? He was, he was a fisherman, okay? And what sea was John used to fishing? He knew Galilee like the back of his hand. He knew the shores. He knew its patterns. He knew the sandbars. He knew this sea. Well, what's the point? Well, John, some six decades later after being with Jesus as an old man around 90, writing this, he's thinking back. He's remembering that night. He knows what it's like to traverse the lake. And he's writing, I think we were about three or four miles. We rode about three or four miles. And, and he uses these words, the sea was rough and the winds were strong. So if a rugged old fisherman says rough and strong, you better believe it was rough and strong. This was not a breeze, right? This was a big deal, no small storm. Now notice that detail, right? They've been rowing about three or four miles. I told you the dimensions of the lake earlier. Width about eight miles east to west. They've been rowing about three or four miles. They're, they're traveling from Bethsaida to Capernaum, so from the east to the west. What does this mean? Well, it means two things. It means they are out in the deep. And it means their going is slower than it should be because of the, the winds that are countering them and pushing them back. They should have been a lot closer to where they needed to be, but they weren't. They were stuck out there over the deep. They're fighting the elements. Now, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew, so let's go ahead and look at that one. Matthew 14, 24 through 25, it says, The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So the fourth watch, this is important. Why? What's the fourth watch? Well, that is between three and 6 a.m., the darkest part of the night. So now imagine this with me. It's the deep of night. It's the darkest part of the dark. And they're far out. They're floating over the deepest of the deep. These guys have been rowing a long time. Like exhaustion and fatigue is, is taking over. And when exhaustion and fatigue takes over, you start to get bleary-eyed, and your, your mind starts to slow. Things aren't working the way um, that it's supposed to. And they've been ministering. They've been feeding thousands. They've been around thousands and thousands of people all day. They've been traveling. Now it's between 3 and 6 in the morning, and they're stuck on a lake, and they're trying to get out from this storm. So put your, put your head in their, their headspace, in your body, in their body space. Lactic acid is building up in their muscles as they are rowing against the storm that is relentless. We don't see things rightly when, when we're tired, right? When we're exhausted, it changes how we see things. My mental faculties drop real quickly at night. Just ask Marla uh, because she'll want to schedule, you know, the next week while we're <laughs> like before bed and I'm just like drooling like, well, I can't function right now. Um, and so just imagine the, the mindset these, these men are in. 
And so here's what's going on. It is as the storm is at its peak strength. It is as these apprentices are at their weakest. It is when the dark is at its darkest. It is when the deeps are at their deepest that Jesus comes. Now, do you think they expected to see Jesus strolling on up to them on a boiling sea? No. They didn't expect Jesus to come walking on up. They knew he could do incredible things. But then they see an unexpected Jesus in strange, bizarre, and strenuous circumstances. And how do they respond? Hey, Jesus. Glad you're here, right? No, no, they, they freak out. They cry, ghost, sea demon, phantom. To them, through, the, through their fatigue and blearied eyes and, and then the mist and the spray and the danger and the, the adrenaline they feel, they see a threat walking their way, which is fascinating when you think about it because their hope of salvation comes and they perceive, because of their own weakness and their own brokenness and their own fatigue, they perceive their only salvation as the threat to them. Isn't that wild? Like how often have we done that? Where the, the hope that comes to us comes in a strange way and we perceive of it as God doesn't care. But it's actually him showing up, arriving, about to bring some kind of salvation. Okay, here comes now the pivot, the turn in our story. Verses 20 and 21. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You can see it right there on the front end of that sentence, but, right? He, but he, that's an adversative, right? It's a conjunction that expresses a contrary view. Things are this way, but then there's also this. Here comes the pivot. Here comes the change in the narrative. Again, when Jesus shows up, things change. Maybe not in the way we expect, but they change. He knows they're terrified. So he shouts out, Ego e me. He says, It is I. It is I, don't be afraid. I am, don't be afraid. Now, at this word, terror is, is turned into, into gladness, right? Despair is turned into joy as they gladly take him into the boat. See, Jesus has stepped into the middle of the storm's strength. So Jesus has stepped into the middle of of their fear. He stepped into the middle of their anxieties. He stepped into the middle of the darkest dark of the night. He stepped into the middle of the deepest of the deep. And then we get this, this statement. This is such a quizzical statement. Look at this. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Like, what do I do with that? Like, how many times have I read the story and just kind of glossed over that? And this week I couldn't gloss over it because I was preaching it, so I had to do something with it. Like, Lord, what, what, what is going on here? Is this a second miracle? Is this a second miracle? Like, does, does Jesus work a miracle of time and space and miraculously relocate the boat from over the deep to the safe haven shore over here? Like, boom, boom, like kind of sci-fi. Like, Possibly, totally, yeah. I mean, this happens in other places where someone's here in the Bible and then suddenly they're here because God is the Lord over time and space and Jesus is, is the creator. He is Lord over time and space as well as the sea, right? I like that. I like that. Could it also mean that John is communicating something about the strange fact 
of time that when we are in awe, when we are enraptured by something, when we are in that state of wonderment and we are beholding beauty, five hours feels like five seconds. Because we know from these other pastors that they worship him as the son of God. Could it be that? Possibly. I like to think it's both. But here's what we do know. We do know that because Jesus joins them, they make it to their final destination. They make it to where they were supposed to go. They make it to their safe haven. What a story. And it's so compact, right? There's so much there. So, so let's do this. Let's, let's take some reflection time now and marvel at a few things together from a few different angles. So first, um, John's account is pretty short when you, you look at it compared to Matthew and Mark's account. Why? What is he doing? Because he usually has longer stories. Why is this one compact? What's the sign that he wants us to see? Remember, John is curating a bunch of signs that he's spotlighting so that we see who Jesus is. Because if you remember the, the stated purpose of the book of John, it's that people would read about all of these things and they would see Jesus as the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, and that if we entrust our lives to him, then we will have eternal life. So this is what he wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus is our only hope, our Lord. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And that if we trust him, we will live. And again, Matthew 14, Mark 6, they recount the story of Jesus walking on water, but their accounts are longer and they're more filled in. And here's the strange thing that just like popped open to me this week. You know what bit Jesus or John leaves out of this story? We never see the calming of the storm. Jesus walking on water, he gets in the boat, but where the other accounts say the, the storm stops, John never mentions the storm stops. Why in the world would he leave out that massive detail? John is framing things in a way to help us to see something that we so often miss in our own broken and, and, and interned nature. What is the sign? What does he want us to see? One way to say it is this. The fifth sign that John wants us to see is that Jesus is Lord over all creation and he gets into the middle of the mess with us. He is the storm walker who steps into our battered boats. Because notice how he writes this. There's terror, there's fear, there's imminent danger. Then Jesus comes in, he steps into the boat, and fear is transformed. Now there is gladness, dread becomes joy. And he doesn't tell us that, that the storm has stopped. See, the important thing is not that the storm has stopped. The important thing is that Jesus is there. The important thing is that Jesus is in the middle of the mess with them. The important thing is not that the wind and the waves are absent. The important thing is that Jesus is present. Jesus gets in the middle of the mess with us. He steps into our creaking boats. And so what? So the winds rage and the waves pound. If the storm walker, the one who created it all, is with you, you're going to be okay. And and think about the humanity of the story with me really quickly. John is an older man at the point of writing this. He's had some six decades. Some six decades to meditate on these things. 
do you think John, after being baptized by the Holy Spirit, after you know, having the Spirit live within him, and then living six more decades, do you think John faced any more storms after he had the Holy Spirit live within him? What do we think? He was the pastor of a church in Ephesus, a world that was dead set against him and the gospel of Jesus. He was persecuted, we know from church history. His, his flock was, was killed, was, was martyred. The world pressed against him. The winds pushed against him. He knew trial. He knew tribulation. He knew the church was going to face more storms. And the message he was delivering them wasn't, hey, Jesus comes into your life. Everything's fine. No more storms. Put a smile on and be done. That's not what he delivers. He says the storms are coming. And the storms are raging. But Jesus is with us. And that changes everything. Now, it was, it was fantastic. This week, uh, right when I wrote that part, I get a text on my phone from, from Pastor Dane. I said, Inklings, typing all this up. I my, my earbuds in. My text goes off. And it's Dane. And he says, hey, I wanted to share with you my, my daily devotion. It's Psalm 93. I thought it would be an encouragement to you as you prepare the sermon. Here's what it says. It's Psalm 93, verses 3 through 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Love how the Spirit works and does these real-time hyperlinks. As you're in His Word, as you're praying, as you're living in community with each other, sharing these things, and the Spirit moves and breathes amidst these threads of community and Scripture and prayer, and suddenly He reveals something to you by His Spirit. Simple text while reading and praying through Scripture, and these things come colliding together. It's beautiful. It's a simple logic here. The sea maker is greater than the sea. The sea maker is greater than the sea. And Jesus walks on the threatening waves like they are stepping stones in your back herb garden. He steps across the chaotic sea like it's a smoothly paved road. Jesus is God with us. He is the creator come to save, walking within his own creation. Now, um, there's something wonderful here that I would like to draw out for a few moments before we take this to a real personal uh, moment of application. There's something just wonderful here. Recall, when Jesus comes up to the boat, what does he cry out to them? Here I am. Don't be afraid. Ego, a me, is how it's written in the Greek. Ego, I, a me. I am. I am. He says, I am. Now, to a Jewish listener, to a Jewish guy in a boat, the, the hair on the back of the neck would have started to go up. And, and, and something would have been happening to your pulse as you hear those words, I am. Because in Exodus, when Moses is standing before the burning bush, and he says, who am I supposed to tell this, this group of slaves that you're bringing out? Like, who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? Who is this God? And from the burning bush, we hear those words, I am. I am that I am. 
I am who I will be. He is the one who is. So the God who liberates his people through the Exodus story, right? The one who speaks from a burning bush, the Red Sea splitter, that's I am. That's Yahweh. And that's why you hear in capital letters in the Old Testament, if you see Lord in capital letters, it doesn't just mean like a God or a ruler. That is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Yahweh, the, the covenant God, is the one who walks on the seas and is mightier than the waters. I am. And then Jesus shows up in John 6, 20 and says, I am. The God who redeemed the people. The God who split open a sea so they could walk through what was their imminent death and doom to bring them up and resurrect them as the, the, the people to live in the land of promise. The God who spoke from the fiery bush is now the God who is speaking from the wind and the waves and walking on the sea and will deliver his people, the tribes, the twelve, through the waters that was meant to be their death. See the connections overlap. Oh, it's glorious. The creator and controller of the sea steps into their creaking boats. And I pray at this point there's some hope that's starting to rise, that's starting to boil in your blood. The hope that we have if all this is real. Because what can't he save us from? And he's the creator. He's mightier than all the waves. He's still doing the same thing, guys. He's still stepping into boats. He's still entering into the middle of our messy storms. He's showing up in the dark and stormy night. How are we doing? Are we all right? Okay. So let's tie some of these beautiful truths together here. So the first is this. As apprentices of Jesus, we will face storms. And it's sad that, that I have to say this. But, but being an apprentice is not about not being in storms. It's about being in whatever storms come with our master, with Jesus. And the reason why that has to be said is because there's a lot of really garbagey presentations of the gospel out there that are saccharine, that are self-centered, that are more bent towards what we want and, and how we think God is than how God really is. And so you get something like this. You get like, hey, we're so glad you're here. You know, if you're having this rough time, like, hey, just bend that knee to Jesus. Come on up. We'll pray for you. And everything's going to change. You know that, de de that depression? You know that anxiety? It's going to go away. It's going to melt away today. If you start that tithe coming in, you will guaranteed, no doubt, get this and this and this. Guaranteed. It's a formula. Just You will get that new job. You will have all your relationships restored if you just follow Jesus. Everything will be fine. The problem is, that circumvents a life of following Jesus down a road of suffering that conforms us to his image, that teaches us compassion, and that teaches us how to love other people well. And as apprentices of Jesus, we are called to carry our cross. Now, I'm not saying we don't get healed. He's a healer. I'm not saying he doesn't bless us financially as we follow him faithfully. He does. But if you say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, so there's no more suffering and no more storms, like, I just, it doesn't comport with what we read, does it? doesn't we are never 
guaranteed the certainty of a road without suffering. In fact, we're promised the opposite. We are promised that we will carry across. The winds of this world will push against us. But he will be with us and he will bring us to that destination. Next, the, Jesus, the storm walker, steps into our battered boats. So though there will be storms and though there are storms, he is with us. Yahweh is with us by the power of his spirit. Our creator has come to save. His powerful presence is the cure for fear. And our world is really good at invoking and inducing fear, isn't it? Man, we have just this smoothly running, glossy, like, massive media machine that just pumps fears into the amygdala. That, that bit of the brain, that bit of fleshy matter that has the fight or flight response that's kind of deep there in the center. Headlines are crafted. News reports and sections are cultivated in such a way that it pushes on that amygdala. You get the fight or flight thing and you respond and you react and for every click money's made. So we have a world that is, is trying to cultivate fear. And I imagine a lot more of us than we'd like to admit have been inviting the news channel into our boat more than we've been looking at Jesus and glad that he has stepped in and is in control. Now, yeah, there's storms and Jesus is with us. And then there's this other good bit. Someday the storms will end. They're not ultimate, right? Someday they will end. So third, Jesus will bring us to our intended destination. And in verse 21, I love this. It says, the land to which they were going. That's where, they, that's where they end up. The land to which they were going that Jesus had set out for them. Their destination was Capernaum. Ours is in Capernaum. Our good harbor, our beautiful haven is the new creation. Being in his presence when his kingdom has fully come and he has wiped away every tear and we are sitting with him face to face, enjoying the wedding feast, being with the lover of our souls. The land to which they were going. Someday your storm, whatever it is, will end <laughs> and all things will be made right. Now in closing, um, I want to make this really personal for us. Um, I want to make it really personal for me. Uh, what is the storm that you are in? Can you name it? Can you name it? Can you put words to it? What storm is raging in your life? What's the surging flood or, or floods? Into what battered boat is Jesus stepping? I can tell you mine. The name of, of my storm in this season of life is is, is nerve pain. It's chronic pain. Some of you know this. Um, not many do. Uh, but for the, the last nine months, um, I've been dealing with, with uh, nerve, nerve pain. I thought it was a sciatica issue going on for a while, but it just kept getting worse and worse. And, um, and, and so basically, long story short, um, I live with a new, a new companion, a new buddy of mine called chronic pain, which takes the form of electricity running through, through my, my leg, an acute stabbing at the left side of my knee, and um, like a perpetual Charlie horse made of lava in my calf. Okay, fun, good stuff. Um, but the good news is it only hurts when I stand or walk. So, so that's, that's the, the good, good news. Um, I have been diagnosed with a, a defect in my lower spine um, that 
um, is, is basically um, a, a variant of spina bifida occulta. It's called a bilateral pars fracture, which means there's a, there's a defect or a breaking or a gaffage or a fracture with, that has one of my vertebrae in basically two pieces. And, it, and so it's, it's moving. Um, the bone's compromised, and over time, you know, you get older, gravity works its, its stuff, you pick up kids, you do your thing. Over time, the bone has, has slipped and is, is now rubbing, rubbing that nerve and reminding me um, um, of my frailty um, daily. And this, by the way, is why sometimes I shift awkwardly over this past year, like that I didn't used to do it, but, but now I shift more awkwardly, you know, while I'm standing or maybe up here or out in the foyer or I look antsy. Um, and maybe, by the way, we've been in a conversation and I've like grimaced at you. It's not because of you or the conversation, most likely. I mean, <laughs> just give me some grace. Sometimes, but it's because there's been a surge, there's a, there's a, there's a fire that I didn't expect in that moment and I'm, I'm processing your grace is sufficient, your grace is sufficient. And I have to, have to apologize to my team, um, like sometimes because I stare off into the middle distance because it's like, your grace is sufficient in the middle of a meeting, right? They all understand that, that, that now. Um, and as many of you know, way better than me, some of you have had chronic pain for years. I'm looking at some of you right now. I know you know pain. You're well acquainted. And it, it does something to you. It does something to you. And it can be good and it can be bad. One of the things that he's been doing in me is reminding me of my need for constant prayer to be, to be in deep, abiding fellowship with him throughout the day. And my struggle is, is fighting for patience. It's, it's fighting for graciousness. It's, it's fighting um, for kindness. Because when your leg's on fire and it takes your kid way too long to get to the bathroom to get you know, the toothbrush to them, and you're like, oh, come on. And so I'm fighting for those things. But the good news is there's an intimacy that's growing. Because I can't do it without him. And the, the storm hasn't stopped and my boat's creaking. But he didn't stay up on the mountain from afar and say, that sucks to be you. He came down into the middle. He saved me. He's with me. He knows the pain of a groaning body. And there's joy in the midst of it. And paradoxically, some of my most joyful moments have been rising this past year, seeing the beauty of my family and my kids and you all, and the fact that I get to do what I get to do. He's here with me. And it's good. It's good. It's not easy, but it's good. Guys, how many times do I have to cry in front of you in the sermon series? <laughs> He's doing a renewing work in me. And I pray he is in you too. Look, your storm may not be called nerve pain or a bilateral pars fracture with left foraminal narrowing to a severe degree. But what's your storm? What's it called? Is it financial ruin? Is it loss of identity, an identity crisis? Is it a dark night of the soul? Is it doubt? Is it some deep level of deconstruction that sideswiped you? Is it a relationship rupture, debilitating anxiety or depression? Is it pervasive fear of death? I don't know. Whatever that storm is, turn your eyes to Jesus. 
Know that as an apprentice of Jesus, he comes to you when the storm is at its strength. He comes to you when you are at your weakest. He comes to you when the night is darkest. He comes to you when the depth is at its deepest. Know that the one who walks on the storm, who steps on waves like they're stepping stones, is in the boat with you. And this is the, the point I, I want us to walk away with. Jesus brings the peace of his presence into the chaos of your circumstance. Jesus brings the peace of his presence into the chaos of your circumstance. The presence of Jesus is the cure for fear. Look to him ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times more than you look to the news out there or the internal broken narratives that tell you you're not loved, you're unwanted, Jesus isn't real. Look to him. And what will look like a ghost, something terrifying that was coming to you, see the beauty of who he is. And that he came and he stepped into your boat, into your dark and your stormy night. Lay down your fears in this world of COVID and war and inflation and vitriol and offense and us versus them, polarization, etc. For Jesus stepped into the boat of this church. He stepped into the boat that is your life. Good news, friends. We have much to rejoice in. Let's pray. Father, you're awesome. You are the creator. You are our redeemer. You are our restorer, our sustainer. You're our healer. Thank you. Thank you. And so we come now after um, this passage to uh, confess our need for you. And to, to eat, to taste of your grace, to taste that you are the bread of heaven and that you are the provision in the midst of our storms. So we thank you now for this time. Work wonderfully in us for your glory. Amen.